the women of the Republican Court Revisited is um, it's a, an event of, of one of a long, long series of almost every year, not quite every year, Women's History Month that we've been doing since, I think, the late 80s or early 90s. So this is a Women's History Month event. It's also a, an event in our new program in visual culture. It's actually the third lecture in the visual culture program, um, which is uh, funded by and was founded by our former board chair, Bill Helfand, program includes programs like this, visual culture program includes programs like this and also research fellowships to um, encourage people to use our collections. Um, this evening's program is co-sponsored by the Friends of the Bryn Mawr College Library and the College's Center for Visual Culture. They have a Center for Visual Culture too. Uh, Bryn Mawr was one of the partners in the 2004 exhibition Picturing Women, a show that, that stimulated the study of the portrayal of women in art and text through all periods. Um, we have here representing Bryn Mawr, uh, Eric Pomeroy. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you, sponsors all. Um, we're, we're also celebrating, as Eric says, the recent publication of the companion book for picturing women, which is called Reframing Representations of Women. It'll be a lasting record of the project, and a copy of the book, um, which includes an essay by tonight's speaker, Connie King, is available in the exhibition gallery in the entrance to the gallery through there. And there also are order forms. We have only one copy. We don't have it for sale, but there are order forms if you would like to order a copy of your own. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce Connie King, the library company's curator of women's history and chief of reference. She worked closely with Susan Schifrin, who is the guest curator for all aspects of picturing women. And Connie will lead tonight's program on the women of the Republican court. Connie has been with the library company since the year 2000, and she actually began her library career at Bryn Mawr College, um, where she worked in the art, and art, the art and Archaeology Library as an undergraduate. So, Connie, welcome. Thank you, Jim. As Jim said, Picturing Women was one of the liveliest and most provocative exhibitions the library company ever had. I can still remember the lilting honky-tonk tune that greeted us in our gallery every day. The lyrics suggested that women had to be beautiful, to stay beautiful in order to be loved, and served as a counterpoint to texts about corsets. I also remember an event during the exhibition at which a local fashion historian performed the Victorian striptease. Picturing women in all its glory was great fun and definitely succeeded in its objective. It all was thought-provoking and also inspiring. So here's part of the website of Picturing Women, only a very, very small piece of it. The show juxtaposed the artwork from various periods in an effort to provoke dialogue about the portrayal of women. Curated by art historian Susan Schifrin, it was on view concurrently at Bryn Mawr, the Library Company, and the Rosenbach Museum and Library. It provided us an exciting opportunity to showcase visual materials in our collections. But I'm sorry to have to announce that there will be no striptease tonight. <laughs> As I mentioned, thanks to Picturing Women, we started looking at our collections in new ways. In particular, we focused on portrait frontispieces. Many of these small prints inserted in books 
were crafted by the leading artists, engravers, and lithographers of the day. We also realize that these particular portraits of American women are off the radar for most art historians. The only one that regularly receives attention is the well-known portrait of Phyllis Wheatley seated with pen in hand. Since picturing women, we have endeavored to locate as many of these portraits as possible. And ultimately, we hope to identify all the portraits of American women that appeared in print before 1861. So far, we have located over 180, some appearing in more than one artist's rendition. For example, we know of 10 published portraits of Martha Washington, that is, published as plates in books, not separate prints. We also have located 11 portraits of Lydia Sigourney and nine portraits of Frances Osgood, both of whom were leading poets in the 19th century. In fact, women writers are by far our largest category. While all our lists got longer and longer, we decided to create a website featuring women's portraits. Since 2005, we've actually done three websites. This has been possible with the help of extremely talented interns from Haverford College plus volunteers. In 2005, Emily Klein helped us create a website featuring the women's writers' portraits. And for each one, she did a capsule biography and listed where else portraits appeared. In this case, you're looking at Mrs. Sarah Josepha Hale, the editor of Godey's Ladies Book. And uh, much as you saw um, Phyllis Wheatley, you can see large portraits of these women. The following summer, that is 2006, Colin Yarbrough did the same thing for women in religion. This time he would take a, a block quote from the women's own writings to try to establish their, uh, uh, what we could know about what they believed um, in, their, in their religious faith. And again, frequently uh, somebody who appears in print once will appear in print many times. And sometimes the only portrait we had was on a binding. Uh, it's actually the only one of that nature. And we tried to do uh, as much as we could to get people started uh, in their uh, study of women's history through portraiture. This past summer, Annie Turner and later Janet Hallahan created a third section of 25 women from the Republican court. These are women who were active in public life during the early republic. These women are part of a social and political network that we generally refer to as the Republican court or uh, any way we can to differentiate it from the Supreme Court today. <laughs> I was on the phone this afternoon trying to explain that I wasn't talking about the Supreme Court in, in 2009. Um, but you get the idea. And again, uh, 
you can click on any one of these portraits on our website and get a capsule biography. In this case, we have a nice one here um, with a fair number of footnotes. For us, for the footnotes were new. Uh, and we did this because, by and large, the, what we knew about these women, we knew from sources that appeared much later than the time when they were alive. Uh, so we realized we had to say where the information we were using was coming from. It became part of the story. Um, if a particular woman uh, was written about by Rufus Griswold in his 1855 book, The Republican Court or American Society in the Days of Washington, which was the source for all 25 of these portraits, or from Elizabeth Ellett's 1867 book, Queens of American Society, the word queen suggesting the book's tone, or from a modern secondary text by Catherine Algor, Susan Branson, or another of the first-rate modern historians who have studied this important period in women's history. Artwork also became a key part of our story. The Republican Court or Lady Washington's Reception Day, shown here, captures the nostalgia for the post-revolutionary era that pervaded the nation in the 1850s. This is a tremendously important image, especially as an influence on later historical understanding of society in 1790s Philadelphia. The original painting, now owned by the Brooklyn Museum, is by Daniel Huntington, a New York painter. The most modern references uh, most modern references that we see fail to note that Huntington was not the originator of the project. Its originator was engraver Alexander Hay Ritchie, who commissioned the painting from Huntington as a speculative venture. According to an 1870s article in Scribner's, the engraver Ritchie paid the artist Huntington $2,500 in 1859 to paint the group portrait. And, and Huntington, by the way, took the ball and ran. Uh, Ritchie's idea was small. Hunting's was, Huntington's was huge. After the painting was completed in 1861, that's 18 months later, the Civil War likely interfered with Ritchie's plans to capitalize on his investment. Not until 1865 did Ritchie market his engraved print from, for prices ranging from $15 for a plain one to $50 for an artist proof. It was a hugely successful venture for Ritchie, such that when that Scribner's article appeared in 1871, the $2,500 commission that Huntington uh, was paid seemed fault paltry, given how well known it had become as a, uh, in its reproduction as a print. I should also note that the, there's evidence that Huntington may have received about twice that, about 4500 But both figures pale next to the $25,000 which retailer A.T. Stewart paid for the painting when he purchased it in 1866. By the way, the engraver, the commissioner of the image, Alexander Hay Ritchie, had a terrific eye for good subject matter. Ten years earlier, in 1855, he had engraved Washington and his generals, and ten years later, in 1875, he would engrave the death of Lincoln, 
both of which became highly saleable images. But we're here tonight for Lady Washington's reception day. One thing we should say immediately about the scene is that it is as mythical as the cherry tree story. The prospectus that came with it even states that the people depicted could never have been in the same room at the same time. It states that, quote, the artist's purpose was to represent in one form the statesman and bell of Washington's second term, that is, from 1793 to 1796. And as I counted, at least half a dozen of the people in this image were no longer alive <laughs> in 1793. So nominally, the setting is Philadelphia, which was the nation's capital between 1790 and 1800. Uh, but no room in 1790s Philadelphia had the capacity or the grandeur depicted here. Uh, ironically, the image often appears in American history textbooks as a literal portrayal of social life during Washington's presidency. Some have even identified the setting as an 1789 residence for the Washingtons in New York City. But regardless, it's a made-up scene following European traditions of court painting much more than anything American. And before I, I talk about anything else, I want to point out something with this uh, fancy laser pointer. Uh, that is... George III, that's a painting of George III on the wall, and this is a painting of Queen Charlotte. So they really were doing a court scene in, in many senses. But we do have to give Huntington his due. The formality of the scene may have been true to life. According to all accounts, Mrs. Washington's gatherings were indeed formal and guests would stand or sit waiting to be greeted by their hostess. The formality was particularly useful to President Washington, who is said to have maintained a certain majesty by keeping his distance from his invited guests. Of course, the problem here is that it's very hard to know truth from legend regarding George Washington, but that's a huge topic for another day. We do know that Anne Willing Bingham, this woman here in the center, um, hosted lavish assemblies at the Bingham's Philadelphia mansion. Hers reportedly were much livelier than Mrs. Washington's levees, as these receptions were called. At Mrs. Bingham's, apparently, they played cards. But then one has to wonder how much Huntington's very formal portrayal here contributed to our later understanding of M Mrs. Washington's levees. The painting is nothing if not static, uh, frozen in a static moment. Our copy of the Ritchie print available in our print department came as a gift from library company member David Durrett. We are particularly pleased to have received it last year to introduce our new website featuring the 25 individual portraits of the women that appeared in Rufus Griswold's 1855 book. The Griswold book may even have been the inspiration for Ritchie's idea of commissioning the painting, and Huntington may well have consulted the plates for the portrayal of the 20 women whose portraits also appear in this 64-person group portrait. 
For women owners of Ritchie's print in the 19th century, the mythical scene enabled them to study the accoutrement of female refinement. How to hold a fan artfully, how to drape one's clothing decoratively, and how to turn one's neck to the best advantage. Yes, yes indeed. There's, there's a lot of neck turning out there. Such talents, and etiquette generally, underscored and validated the imbalance of women's rights with respect to men. Many later 19th century women became dissatisfied with social graces as a substitute for political and economic power. But that's definitely another story for another day. Tonight, I want to discuss how the Ritchie print inspired historically-minded Americans to reenact this scene especially in the 1870s. The first occasion was right here in Philadelphia. The male organizers of the Centennial enlisted help from 13 Philadelphia women who formed a women's committee to raise money for the big 1876 event, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the country. In a few months, the women were able to raise $50,000 in pledges. Then, unfortunately, the panic of autumn 1873 curtailed the progress of their fundraising. So in December 1873, at the suggestion of one Horace J. Smith, the women tried another strategy. They held tea parties to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The original Bostonians who threw tea into Boston Harbor would have found serving tea to celebrate their actions mighty odd. But the women who did so did staged the event with no apparent irony while wearing Martha Washington costumes. This according to Joseph Wilson's three-volume 1877 text about the centennial. They also sold 10,000 teacups manufactured as mementos of the occasion, each one with a facsimile signature of John Hancock. The, the cups sold for 25 cents <laughs> 100% markup over cost. So any of you who collect pottery out there, it's pretty pretty nice <laughs> opportunity. Uh, but the women with this strategy raised an amazing $1,000 over two evenings, the first at the Academy of Music and the second at Horticultural Hall. The invitations we placed on your seats are replicas of one that came to light this summer when Charlene Peacock of the library company was organizing our centennial ephemera. Thanks to her work, we now know that our centennial ephemera came to us from Horace Smith, the man who conceived of these tea parties, who was also the brother of our then librarian, Lloyd P. Smith. Horace's collecting, in fact, contributed to the library company's extraordinary strength in centennial-related material. Charlene became an expert on Horace's signature on things and handwriting generally. But Horace's idea of holding tea parties to celebrate the Boston Tea Party is still pretty lame. <laughs> but anyone who wants a first-person account of the project uh, uh, with these women's uh, teas in, in the Academy of Music should read Mrs. Elizabeth Duane Gillespie's wonderful autobiography. 
Immediately after the Philadelphia Tea Parties, Martha Washington Tea Parties, with no reference to the Boston Tea Parties, took the country by storm. Other state subcommittees of the Women's Centennial Committee held their own tea parties, at which they also sold teacups. Rhode Island cleared an amazing $3,600. Inspired by these efforts, women in Richmond and Baltimore held Martha Washington teas in 1875 to raise an endowment for the preservation of Mount Vernon. These on the lawn of Mount Vernon. Such entertainments provide opportunities for women to wear their grandmother's formal dresses from the 18th century and also to bring attention to their family's ties to the dignitaries of the Washington presidency. The painter Daniel Huntington himself helped restage this painting or print uh, as a tableau vivant at the Academy of Music in New York City on Washington's birthday in 1875 to raise money for the prestigious St. John's Guild, a charity that served the invalid poor of New York. By the way, Huntington even included a portrait of his own grandfather, Benjamin Huntington, in this scene. Uh, his, his grandfather was a uh, congressman from Connecticut. And uh, believe me, I've become familiar with a lot of these people, but, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the following year, another group, following year, the following year after 1875, another group held a ball in New York City, which everyone, with everyone costumed in 18th century garb. And then also in 1876, again at the Academy of Music, um, the New Yorkers staged the Huntington painting again on Washington's birthday, again selling souvenir teacups, this time ones with replicas of the teacups presented to Washington by Lafayette. According to Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, 8,000 people attended this event, thus raising $15,000 for St. John's Guild. Now that's a successful fundraiser. Teas, formal balls, wow. These revivalist extravaganzas pervaded elite social life in the 1870s, and this image provided the script. But what were the lives of the women depicted in the print really like? In the time remaining, I'd like to give you a hint of what our research has revealed about some of the women in this elegant image. This woman here, over here on the left, is Abigail Adams. I, I can't resist. I have to read what one of the critics in 1865 said about her hat. He called it a sort of triple-towered nightcap abomination. <laughs> and another critic called it a plate warmer. But uh, Abigail Adams we know preferred to be in Massachusetts than in Philadelphia. But bless her, that meant that there's a wonderful record of her correspondence with her husband, John, especially while he was vice president to Washington. Next to her is Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton. Betsy Hamilton was the wife of Alexander Hamilton, 
the Secretary of the Treasury, and she, like Abigail Adams, is known to have been somebody who enjoyed discussing policy with her husband and, and is said to have, have influenced his opinions. And in fact, we see Hamilton right here, looking the dandy that we know him to have been. And, oh, there's so many people. Henry Lawrence here is known to have been dead at the time. <laughs> but he had to be there because he was the president of the Continental Congress. And, and you know, it's, he, he's the right person for the group. <laughs> um, but anyway, I didn't mean to get off the women. Let me go back. This group of women here are people from uh, elite party culture, I guess I'd call the party circuit in New York City from the 1790s. Uh, the first one here is Mary Alsop King. She was the wife of Rufus King. Then there's a Mrs. Van Rensselaer. I'm not exactly sure who she is. There are a lot of candidates for some of these names. And then we get to Cornelia Clinton Janae, who's actually somebody we have trouble telling you a lot about, except about her relatives. We can tell her that she was the daughter of a very important New York governor, Governor Clinton, and the wife of a citizen, Janae, who was a French refugee who famously supported the American cause during the Revolution. So, so she's somebody who needs, needs more work in the archives. Uh, next to Martha, we see Nellie Custis, her, who was uh, her Ms. Martha Washington's granddaughter. Nellie lived with the Washingtons as a child, and even after her marriage, she did not want to leave uh, the family she knew, uh, uh, which is, is quite an interesting fact about her. She's an interesting person. Next to Nellie, we see Mary White Morris. The Washingtons stayed in the Morris's mansion while they lived in Philadelphia. Her husband, Robert Morris, famously uh, was forced into debtor's prison in 1798. Oh, I guess I should do something. There. Uh, but, but at this time in the second presidency, the Morrises definitely were social leaders in uh, uh, Philadelphia. Now here we have, let's see, next to Jefferson, we have Dolly Madison. During Washington's second term, she was Widow Todd, her first husband having died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. During Jefferson's presidency, she would serve as hostess for some of his receptions, and then she would be the wife of James Madison, who became president after Jefferson, of course. In the 1790s, however, people noted a bit cattily that Dolly dressed much more fashionably after the death of her Quaker husband. <laughs> By the way, I have to tell you something. I mean, here is somebody, and if you look up close, you actually can see that the woman depicted there is wearing something that's a little frilly. But there are two keys identifying the people in this uh, uh, print. And one of them identifies her as Dolly Madison, and I like that. And the other one identifies her as Faith Trumbull Wadsworth, who was the sister of John Trumbull and the uh, daughter of Jonathan Trumbull, a uh, famous governor of Connecticut during colonial era who supported the, the uh, American cause. 
but I have a hunch that the original intention was to depict Mrs. Wadsworth because she's standing pretty close to her family members. And somehow, uh, 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 for, for reasons of popularity, she morphed into Dolly Madison, who was, was definitely the, the people's queen. Uh, in some circles. She, was also, she also had her detractors, but that's, that's again another story. Um, I have to mention George Washington. He's portrayed here in a very interesting stance. He looks for all the world like the Lansdowne portrait uh, of Gilbert Stuart. Stuart probably never suspected this, this stance could be used to enable Washington to gesture to Martha. <laughs> Stewart is said to have depicted Washington as he renounced his third term as president. So this is a completely different meaning here. <laughs> Next to Washington, we see Harriet Chu Carroll, uh, whose biographers often note that she was a, a special favorite of Washington's. Uh, and they rarely note that her husband, Charles Carroll Jr., turned out to be an abusive alcoholic. And Harriet would move back to her childhood home outside of Philadelphia rather than stay with him. Philip Zeit's recent note in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography provides a fascinating glimpse of this era in the Chu family saga, and especially the situation of the enslaved woman who accompanied Harriet to Philadelphia when she left her husband's home in Maryland. This eye-catching central figure is Anne Willing Bingham, whose receptions included the butler who announced each guest, a custom which for many was suspiciously French, as was the card playing I previously noted. By the way, it was her husband William Bingham who commissioned the iconic Lansdowne portrait to give to a British supporter of the American Revolution named William Petty, who was the first Marquess of Lansdowne. So that's, that's how it got its name, its moniker in art history. Uh, so, during this era, the Binghams were nothing if not wealthy and influential. Here in the background is Abigail Adams Smith, the Adams' daughter, who, like her mother, generally preferred to avoid this sort of occasion. Let's see, I want to be sure you know who this is right here. Um, famously, she wrote to her mother, I have as much society as I wish in our family. Mrs. Bingham and Abigail Smith could not have been more different in temperament. This is Pamela Dwight Sedgwick. Rufus Griswold in 1855 notes her refinement and grace, but her daughter, who, you know, to my surprise, was the author Catherine Sedgwick, I'd never figured that out, noted that the separation likely hastened her mother's descent into mental illness. So a lot of these women were separated from their husbands while they were serving uh, either in New York or Philadelphia or later in Washington. This is Sarah J., Sarah Livingston J. Like Mrs. Bingham, she spent a lot of time in France while her husband was a diplomat. And like Mrs. Bingham in the 1790s, some people spoke disparagingly of her European taste. One can imagine that these same critics would have been aghast at the Huntington's courtly representation of every aspect of this scene. This is Sophia Chu Phillips, 
who was Harriet, Harriet's sister. Abigail Adams speaks of the two sisters as part of a constellation of beauties, and Huntington definitely has given you that sense for this group of women here that are so prominent. But my favorite, my favorite is the woman in the background here. That's Catherine Dewar. Catherine Alexander Dewar was known as Lady Kitty because her father claimed to be a Scottish Earl, something which the elite of the day apparently viewed as a mild eccentricity. It was never substantiated. I don't think it could have been. But George Washington himself gave Lady Kitty away when she married leading stockbroker William Dewar. Dewar and Robert Morris were both instrumental in financing the American Revolution. But later on, Dewar lost about $3 million in the Panic of 1792. So in the 1790s, at least in this period of the 1790s, Lady Kitty was running a boarding house in New York City and wasn't in Philadelphia at all. Another famous beauty was Alice Izzard, here speaking with the widow of Governor Clinton. Uh, above them is Sally Otis, uh, a Bostonian. Now, Sally Otis is unusual. She was a Bostonian. She frequently stayed in Bostonian, taking care of her ten children. But people thought of her as another person who could be faulted for her French taste. And that's kind of unusual for, for a Bostonian, as, a, as far as I can tell. This is Polly Carroll Catton. That would have been Harriet Chu Carroll's sister-in-law. And she apparently had a better life, a happier life than her dissipated brother. This person over here is Mary Ann Walcott Goodrich, who is the wife of Chauncey Goodrich. She is noted for her wit and intelligence frequently in a culture that mainly focused on beauty and sociability. So she's an unusual one. Um, and before I speak about one last person, I want to mention this woman. This woman with her back to us. One of our keys lists her as Mrs. Winthrop. And the other one that we only, and the, the one of the keys, the one we don't have, lists her as Mrs. Winthrop, and the other lists her as Miss Stuyvesant. And I have to thank Mr. Richard Burr, who's here tonight, for bringing my attention to this, because it really opened my mind about how, how uh, fluid some of these uh, identifications were for the 19th century purchasers. Uh, the critics in 1865, by the way, were really, really hard on this woman's life, uh, uh, not life, but hair. They said it was clearly a 19th century style and had no, had no place in this painting. I thought of all the things to mention, you know, <laughs> that was the one that gets a lot of airplay. And finally, we see Martha Jefferson Randolph, who's here. She's Thomas Jefferson's daughter, another of the more intellectual women. Martha, among other things, established a school on the grounds of her home in Virginia. And so she was, she was one of the, the people that we think of as, as appropriately shown here with a youngster. But the important person in this scene is the one that I haven't really talked about, the hostess herself, Martha Washington. Tonight we thought it would be best for Martha to speak for herself. So it is my privilege and pleasure to introduce our honored guest, Martha Washington. Please turn up the lights. Oh. 
，哎，谢谢。Gentlemen, please accept my greatest apologies. Gracious me, there are so many of you gathered here this evening. I must be late for my own reception day. If I am not late, then surely you are all early. Truth be told, I must say that my drawing rooms and my reception days. Are held on Friday evenings.、Uh, on Monday evenings,、uh, the vice president's wife,、uh, Mrs. Adams, she indeed holds her receptions. On Thursdays, there are the receptions of Mrs. J, and then, of course, Wednesday evening, which I do believe this is, Wednesday evenings are reserved. For the receptions of Lucy Knox and the fashions here in Philadelphia. Now I must tell you, right at this time, the ladies are preferring these evening headdresses with large plumes upon them. The ceiling in the second floor drawing room is a mite bit low. I recall one evening when one of the bells put plumes. Got caught in the flames of the chandelier. She was rescued by one of the president's aides, who managed to extinguish the flames by smothering them with his hands. I looked out of the corner of my eye. I saw Washington, my grandson. He was in fits of laughter when he caught my eye. He quit the room quickly. <laughs> okay. Your kindness, your kindness is too much. I must say that I will indeed conclude with what I always conclude the end of our receptions with the president. Always retires at nine, and I always retire before him. And so I shall bid you good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the Republic Court. Thank you. Give you a chance to speak privately with Mrs. Washington in a moment, but let me thank a few of the many, many people who helped make this event possible. David Dorret, our member who gave us the print; Eric Prumray and Bryn Mawr College who co-sponsored the event; Emily Cronin of Hereford Humanities Center at Haverford, who sent us amazingly talented interns over the past few years. Emily Toner, our reading room volunteer who scanned the 25 portraits for our website. Annie Turner, our most recent Haverford intern who worked on the biographies last summer, and especially Janet Hallahan, our wonderful reading room intern who completed、uh, volunteer, excuse me, who completed the work Annie started. Her attention to detail and overall presentation improved our texts immensely. 
Thank you, Janet. Susan Schifrin of Ursinus College for the vision and perseverance to bring picturing women to the world. I was extremely privileged to have been part of it. And I want to encourage everyone to take a look at the book that's out on the table in the gallery. Phil Zeitz, I don't see him here tonight, but he has helped us a lot in our understanding of the Chu family women. And thanks to all my colleagues here at the library company, particularly Nicole Scalessa, our IT manager, who helped bring the website into being. We are extraordinarily lucky uh, to have such great in-house talent. Nicole Joniak from our print department who worked with our colleagues at the Athenaeum to produce the printout. I'm, I'm embarrassed to be so excited about a, a, a modern reproduction, but we wanted to keep the print upstairs in our print room, and they did a fabulous job with their big printers. Charlene Peacock, who uncovered the Horace Smith material, which was just a real you know, breakthrough in our understanding of how we got centennial material here. Um, and also my reading room uh, colleagues, Linda August, Rachel D'Agostino, and Edith Mulhern. Uh, and I also want to thank Sarah Weatherwax, uh, curator of prints and photographs, for giving me the opportunity to speak tonight. And, oh yes, and former library company staff member Sharon Heldebrand for making our buttons. We love Sharon's buttons. And finally, I'd like to thank Martha Washington herself and historicphiladelphia.org, the people who allowed her to be with us tonight. <laughs>